Hi there, this is Kent Rowdy, a USH med student, and I believe this is our last podcast amongst the four of us, at least for now. And uh, let's do some introductions. Hey there, I'm Gio. I'm a third-year medical student. Hi, I'm Valentina. I'm also a third-year medical student. And Stephen, this is uh, your premiere podcast, right? Yes, I'm the star of the show today, I guess, right? I. I think so. Well, if the recording works, yes. <laughs> Otherwise, I'll just be down in history. As the only person that we've tried three times to get a podcast <laughs> with, and it just didn't work. All right, so what are we talking... First of all, uh, what is your thoughts about uh, where you're going after you're done with your medical education, with your medical school education? So I am looking a lot into uh, PMNR, physical medicine and rehabilitation, and also psychiatry a little bit I, I, and neurology. I just love things that have to deal with the brain. And I also love kids, so maybe pediatrics. Sounds like you're really narrowing it down to almost anything. Uh, yeah, yeah. But it, I think one thing is I really, I love working with my hands. I love working with people, uh, especially kids. <laughs> I love their energy. And um, I, I'm fascinated by uh, brain injuries. So if you went PM&R and wanted to work with children, what, what does that look like? Is there a, a, is there a pediatric PM&R kind of fellowship? Yeah, they have sports medicine version of that. And I feel like a lot of uh, kids, um, it, probably late in their teens or in sports and early college as well would be kind of in that group. Hmm. Is that kind of like but, but it seems like even PM&R is something that's much more of a rehab as opposed to the kind of repetitive injury, or not repetitive injuries, but the injuries that would commonly happen in sports settings, right? And I'm thinking about mm -hmm. car accidents, those kinds of things, where the PM&R work is done by a, a specialist. And I, I guess I'm wondering, is there a, a PM&R medicine niche for um, pediatrics? And, and I just don't know the answer to that. I, I don't, I can't think of any off the top of my head. Um, but there's some subspecialties of PM&R that go into brain injuries and sports medicine and uh, I'm trying not to say the word geriatrics, but geriatrics. <laughs> yeah, geriatric medicine, yeah. yeah. Okay, so very, very interesting. And Stephen, because of your interest in the brain, you are going to talk about TBIs, or we're going to talk about traumatic yeah. brain injuries. We'll probably refer to that as a TBI quite often. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm going to be in charge of the case scenario today, I think. Is that right? Yes, yes. So this is a case scenario that um, we'll see if anybody can guess who this is. Uh, it's we'll use the initials PG who is a 25 year old male uh, railroad worker and he was distracted while tamping uh, dynamite or some explosive into a hole as they were trying to blast something I'm, I'm not sure I understand that story very well when he was distracted and turned away and the tamping rod that he had was somehow sparked the the dynamite was sparked somehow and the rod shot through his, I believe his left cheek, and then through his brain, and landed about 80 yards, 80 feet away, not 80 yards, but 80 feet away after passing through his brain, and it landed, uh, there's the, a gory description about how it landed with blood and brains on the, 
the tamping rod. Now this tamping rod wasn't small, it was uh, about an inch and a quarter in diameter, and, uh, almost four feet long, 43 inches long, weighed a little over 13 pounds. And uh, PG's tamping rod was a little bit different than most others. Most of those rods had kind of a hooked end on it. If you're watching me on this podcast, you'll be able to see that I'm making a hooked shape <laughs> with my hand. Um, and uh, his was a little bit different. He had asked the blacksmith who made this rod for him to put a pointed end on it, and perhaps that's why I passed through him. He was able, after a few minutes of convulsions, to stand up, get in his um, vehicle, his uh, ox cart, and sit up for the ride to the uh, physician. The physician notes are very fascinating. They talk about a man who showed up and they didn't believe what had happened in the least. They didn't believe that uh, a rod had been shot through his brain. Um, unfortunately, Mr. PG started coughing and about a third of a teacup of uh, material came out of his, uh, his cranium and I think at that point the physician, after hearing the accounts of the eyewitnesses, became more convinced that that was what had actually happened. Uh, Mr. PG had a, a surprising ability to relate the incident immediately, but did have problems with what are likely um, infections from the open wound. And uh, it sounds like it was kind of a tough time for him during some of the period that, that he had that those infections. And then ultimately recovered, uh, became um, sort of a, a sideshow uh, kind of activity where people would pay to see uh, PG and his crowbar, what they called it, and he lived like that uh, off and on. I think he had a difficult time keeping jobs. Before that, he had been able to keep jobs and, and was uh, noted to be uh, a foreman, I think, an effective leader, and even at a fairly young age was managing crews. And it, that seemed to slip away with, from him after the brain injury, and ultimately he ended up in Chile, um, even there, struggled to um, run the stage route that he had been hired to run and ultimately died of, of seizures. So uh, kind of a mystery who that is. <laughs> I wonder who. <laughs> and I think we're going to hopefully in the context of, of this discussion have some thoughts about how maybe we would have looked uh, or observed or assessed Mr. Phineas Gage uh, who was no longer Gage, right? So, so brain injuries can change people and one of the things we're going to talk about is not necessarily the, the physical changes that might lead to motor changes, but we're going to talk about the physical changes that may lead to emotional changes after a brain injury and uh, psychiatric um, consequences from those injuries. So let's start off with uh, something that's kind of um, always been a little bit challenging for me, and that's remembering a GCS. Yeah, uh, so GCS is a Glasgow Coma Scale. And it would have been interesting to know what Phineas Gage's GCS would have been at the time. But it's basically a way to measure the level of consciousness at the time. And it's used commonly, you know, after a motor vehicle accident or an ER to measure um, how conscient, how conscient a, patient, a patient is. And it's a good way to measure that over time as well to see if they're going more towards a coma or if they're okay and recovering. But basically it looks at eyes, verbal, and motor capabilities. And it's graded out of a like a 15 uh, score system and uh, the lowest score you can get is a three basically they're not responding in any of those realms um, so a mild TBI or, or traumatic brain injury would be a GCS score of 13 to 15 a moderate would be 9 to 12 and a severe would be a GCS of 8 or less 
Um, I think another important thing to go over is the different kinds of comas that we're classically taught. Uh, there's two of them. There's a decerebrate posture where the patient is, has the arms to the side and extended. And then the, another type of coma is the decorticate one where they're more flexed with the uh, arms on their chest. Is there a difference in prognosis between those two kinds of postures? I think there is. Help me out, guys. Yeah, I believe this decerebrate posture is, is worse. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, the, the thing that I think is important here is, is the GCS is a measure that helps immediate management of a patient who is in an emergency setting and transitioning uh, to maybe an ICU or a surgical ICU, a shock trauma ICU, uh, along those lines. If I remember my training correctly, depending on what the hospital has and how they name their unit. Um, but that doesn't necessarily give us the kind of prognostic information about what might happen psychiatrically for a patient. And so we're going to talk about another skill now beyond the Glasgow Coma Skill. And I think, Valentina, you're going to tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So uh, one thing that's been used as a predictor for um, outcomes from traumatic brain injuries has been post-traumatic amnesia. But that was found to have a very low specificity. And so I looked at a study that came out of Virginia, Dr. Walker Richmond, and he basically looked at the length of the post-traumatic amnesia and how that can be um, a predictor for the outcomes after a traumatic brain injury. So instead of using the Glasgow Coma Scale, he used the Glasgow Outcome Scale, which is different because it's on a scale of one to five, one being the best, being good recovery, and five being the worst, which would be death, and um, he, and so this is the predict. This is the kind of outcome that you can have: good recovery, moderate disability, severe disability, persistent vegetative state, and death. And he looked at um, a cohort of one thousand three hundred and thirty-two patients from the um, from the National Institute on Disability and Rehabilitation. And 24 hours after the traumatic brain injury, after the traumatic brain injury, they were evaluated for post-traumatic amnesia using the GOAT test and the OLOG test. The OLOG is orientation log, and uh, the GOAT test is the Galveston orientation and amnesia test. And they uh, had a cutoff value of passing as above 75 for the GOAT and above 24 for the OLOG. And what they found was that if you're able to pass these two tests um, and you have to pass it twice, these tests twice, um, then uh, if this ends within four weeks, then you your chance of developing severe disability was less than 15% at one year. Versus if the post-traumatic amnesia lasts beyond eight weeks, your chance of a good recovery is less than 10%. So these were the two most predict... They, they, um, they graphed uh, the outcomes uh, along a continuum of time, but these two time points were the greatest predictors. So just in general, if within, within a month, if the post-traumatic post amnesia is resolved within a month, your outcomes are really good. If by the two point, at the two month mark, they haven't, then it's a, a much more serious situation. So this is so fascinating to me because when I was a student, um, as a resident, I should say, I know that I was taught about traumatic brain injuries, and it seems like I was taught that the pre-traumatic amnesia and the post-traumatic amnesia both had a lot of implications, but certainly at that time, 
there was nothing that had looked that I was aware of so specifically as, as this kind of data. So it, it seems like there, there's this huge challenge in trying to understand how we should treat our patients that have brain injuries. On one hand, every brain injury seems to be very different. It can affect different parts of the brain. It can affect them with different intensity. The way that we measure that effect in how we look at our patients after way, afterwards can vary uh, quite a bit as well. So, so you have uh, prospective studies, retrospective studies. You have the amount of time after the injury that these things might be important. And so there's so many variables that become very difficult to control for. And, and what I really like is we're now starting to look at a couple of things that help us say, okay, here are the things that we think are important. Here are at least some ways that we're going to start measuring them. And, and I think probably my take home, one, one of my big take homes from this is, it feels like there's a lot we don't know. We've had that come up in, I think, everything we've talked about. And in this case, it seems like we don't really have any randomized controlled trials that tell us how to treat these patients. And in fact, we're still kind of figuring out what these patients look like and, and how to conceptualize the patients. I think a good example of this is going to show up in some of the articles that you and I are going to talk about a little more now, Stephen. Mm -hmm. And that is uh, the uh, Ponsford article, uh, which seemed to do a really nice job of talking about kind of what the summary of all of the published research says. And then we're going to look at the Fuji article, which is an article that says, hey, amongst what we do see, we think we see some people with schizophrenia symptoms. Um, mm -hmm. Let's see, schizophrenia-like injury? Uh, schizophrenia-like psychosis caused by TBI. Caused by TBI. And, and so even these two articles, it seemed like there was a little bit of a fight that happened in the Ponsford article saying, we, we just don't believe the Fuji information, I, I think, right? So we're gonna try and tackle the complexity of this and, and try and, and see uh, where this takes us. So, so right off the bat, who are the people that are most likely to have a brain injury? Um, it's often associated with lots of risk-taking behaviors and those driving in cars. <laughs> yeah. Car accidents are, I believe, the number one um, uh, etiology, I guess, of brain injuries. By, by a big number, too. Yeah. I, I kind of, in the back of my mind, imagined that it was uh, kids getting in the head with, hit in the head with baseballs, but I think now you're required to wear helmets pretty consistently, and that risk is a lot lower. Mm -hmm. I, I thought about ATV injuries, but I think even now most people try to wear helmets if they're riding a a ATVs. I think there are still some organ donors that are riding motorcycles that are not wearing um, helmets, but but I think there's a change over my lifetime in seeing people wearing helmets, and so so really this comes down to like 80% cars. Yeah, and especially for the severe type, the moderate to severe types. A lot of mild TBIs from like from what I see from the CDC was like these. This, this number might be bigger because a lot of there's a lot of unreporting of mild TBIs. They get bumped in the head and they just don't think anything of it because they might have a little bit of dizziness or vomiting, but, but then they're like, oh, I'm, I'm better now. Um, there's a lot of feeling of, uh, I'm okay. I'm not too bad. Nothing happened. <laughs> Nothing happened. So uh, anyway, so the, yeah, moderate to severe ones actually sometimes have a worse outcome, as we've kind of seen it, or have a, a more serious sequelae afterwards. And, and probably we simply know more about that in part, right? Because I think you yeah. mentioned uh, as we 
did some of the prep work on this, that nobody shows up at the emergency room for a mild TBI, but but we seem to have more of an ability to track the mo uh, moderate and more severe TBIs. Yes, definitely. That that kind of leads into the next area, and that is that um, if somebody has a TBI, first of all, we we would like to be able to tell somebody, hey, you've had a TBI, and um, here's what we think will happen because of that. Prognosis is difficult because we still don't know how to categorize this. We don't have, we have some prospective databases. And then the other issue that we come into, even if we categorize it, is when we're talking about psychiatric illness, if somebody has a lack of attention, for example, how do you know if that's a depressive symptom versus a symptom from the TBI? And so the overlap of symptoms and choosing what might be the diagnosis or not be the diagnosis is very difficult to know. I feel like also the, uh, there's also a, did this TBI just exacerbate something that might have been there before? Like did they have like some kind of ADHD beforehand, but then they got a TBI and now they, it's been exacerbated and so they really are showing signs of that. And again, I think we're speaking to the complexity of, of how we think about the illness and the roadblocks that the researchers have have in battling, you know, helping us better provide treatment. So I agree. Uh, let's talk about things that show up after TBI. You, you, the Ponsford article, which I think is probably the article we'll link in the in the podcast. Mm -hmm. The Ponsford article did a pretty good job of talking about all of this data, and they yeah. had wild ranges, right? Some conditions showed up anywhere from like four percent to eighty percent. Yeah, and and so it's hard to know where the numbers lie and I think it's hard to know who had TBIs and the severity and, and all of those factors that we talked about before come into play into these ranges. But there did seem to see, be some general trends. What were the general trends that you thought stood out in this article? So the Ponsford article um, has a, got this information from a lot of case reports and case studies um, from a meta-analysis standpoint. So they found these trends in the, this population where for one, the mood disorder uh, pre uh, pre-injury was about 23%, uh, which is actually more than the normal population prevalence. Um, normal population prevalence is, I think, around 10% of people have a mood disorder. And so, but afterwards, after the TBI, uh, at, I believe around the one-year mark was around 40%. That's four to six times the normal population. Um, anxiety followed that similar trend, uh, where it went to 21% pre-injury, to 44.1%, uh, so it doubled basically both the mood disorders and the anxiety disorders in patients with TBI. Not everybody that has a TBI has worsening of their mental health condition. You pointed that out last time when we visited, and, and this leads, or this goes back in part to what we said about the risk factors for having a TBI. What happens in substance abuse? Substance abuse is interesting. Uh, before, the, the pre-injury rate was they estimated around 38.5%. Uh, about half of those cases were alcohol abuse of, or misuse or how you want to phrase yeah, <laughs> it. It has been alcohol abuse in the past. I think uh, alcohol misuse is Yeah, and this is in Australia, that... so I'm not sure how they, how they uh, you know, phrase it down under. <laughs> um, and then post-injury at less than about one, one year, it was 11.8. So it went down by almost almost to uh, the normal population rate, which is, I believe, around, again, 10%. But this is also in Australia. Different places had different um, 
substance use. There seemed to be a battle that that was like there was this gauntlet thrown down in the paragraph that we read about psychosis, right? Oh yes, and mm-hmm. and it seemed like the range in psychosis was was just absolutely difficult to reconcile. Like every anywhere between four and eighty percent of the people who have a TBI are going to have uh, psychosis later that uh, might be related to the TBI. The way that I understood this was being read, but I think um, Dr. Ponsford said hey, listen, these numbers are nonsense, so we don't believe that anyway. <laughs> and not only that, the studies done by Gould and Alway, yes. we just don't have people showing up with psychosis that's really didn't have it before. It's That rate is just so little. We're yeah. skeptical, right? And some of those papers didn't have a really high N uh, sample size number, so maybe they just didn't get a psychotic disorder in their population. Perhaps. I, I think but, that, either, go, go but even if they did... They had such a pop- small population that it you can't make a trend of with an N of one. Like if they have one patient that has that, then you can't mark that this is a trend that's going to increase or decrease. But either way, this is really hard to tell because uh, did they have this beforehand and did they have record of this stuff beforehand? Um, this is this is one of the, we're getting to the nitty gritty of this is the difficulties and the, the challenges we have to overcome to actually find out if psychotic disorders increase or decrease after a. A TBI. Um, they, they did over the bed analysis. They had four patients beforehand uh, that had uh, psychotic features, and then they had uh, in their last ending they had two patients that had um, psychotic features. So, what does that mean, and can we infer anything from that? Now, I think one of the things that I noticed is that uh, Ponsford was a uh, commonly cited. Gould and Alway. Gould and Alway. Mm-hmm. And Gould and Alway and Ponsford mm-hmm. seem to be part of the same group. So this is a group out of Australia. Yes. And this group in Australia had a group of, of post-TBI patients that they were following for a number of years. And they had one-year data that uh, I can't remember if that was what was reported by Gould or if it was the five-year data on the same data set. But but this was a voluntary group of people that said, yeah, we'll, we'll stay in the study and the first um, interview was done with SCID, like a, a structured diagnostic interview, and it was done in person. This is well validated. But then the second interview was done by telephone for the people that they could find for follow-up. And uh, in a, over 50% of the cases, it was done with a, a caregiver or an informed provider of some sort, apparently. So I think there's a, a lot of, it, it's still good data, as long as we understand the the limitations and the benefits of the data. And I think that's very different than uh, Fuji that we'll talk about in a little bit, who who did a case control analysis, and it looks like he did that based on case reports. Mm-hmm. And so it's a, different ways to try and different viewpoints to try and understand the condition. Yeah. Um, but I think what it left me with was just a lot of uncertainty about this this risk factor that we talk about in, in schizophrenia of TBIs being a risk factor for schizophrenia. I, I think I was left with the idea that there's better data for other things. I agree, yeah. Um, w- one more thing I wanted to mention, because we we're talking about the psychiatric disorders that c- come after a TBI. One thing that they mentioned in the study was they found that a limb injury, a serious limb injury, I should, I should mention, with a TBI um, can lead to about six times increased chance of, of a, a, a risk, I should say, of a psychiatric disorder whether that's mood, anxiety, um, or psychotic disorder. But um, I found that really fascinating. Like, 
apparently our limbs are really important, or that's the implication I took out of it. <laughs> well, I, so first of all, I'm going to agree <laughs> definitively that limbs are very important. Yes. I think we all know that, but, and hopefully we're not stating the obvious there, but uh, yes. Did it say whether that had something to do with PTSD or not, or was it across the board there was an increase? Do you know if there was data on that? Uh, no, just that there was a, I, I believe the anxiety was one of them that, that was significantly increased. So that, that kind of leads into an area that I thought was very fascinating. So Ponsford in her article made a strong case that there is PTSD after TBI. And mm -hmm. then Gould and Alway uh, continued that kind of discussion. There were some specific papers written, I believe, on the same data set about the emergence of PTSD, both early and chronic. What, what does the data seem to show with regards to PTSD? And, I, and I'll set the table by adding one other thing here. First of all, uh, for the panel here, critical things to know about PTSD are, for the uh, principles to know for your tests? Um, you differentiate it from acute stress disorder by the duration, so it's more than a month, um, versus acute stress would be less than a month. So well done. And then the other part of that is you have to have experienced an event that was so traumatic that you relive that, right? Not, yeah. not, this is not the high yield part, but this is the lead into sort of why this became an important question. If you have post-traumatic amnesia, how do you experience an event and have recollection of it after? And so I think hypothetically there's this issue of you probably can't have uh, PTSD with uh, a traumatic brain injury, but the data seems to say something else. So Stephen, what does the data say? So the general trend that they found um, was that the severity of PTSD um, was associated with a shorter PTA. So in other words, if, if it was an injury that caused only a short PTA, amnesia, then the uh, severity of the PTSD was likely to be, be greater. I think they also found something else that was fascinating to me, and that was that uh, PTSD seemed to peak at about month six, but seemed to start fading after that. Yeah, there's a little peak that happens around six to 12 months, somewhere in there, usually around like nine months, I think, mm -hmm. is kind of the actual tippy top of the peak. And then it started coming down after that. But that was really interesting that it wasn't just immediately after. Right, there wasn't the, the spike in acute stress disorder consistently, was there? Mm -hmm. The other thing that I thought was uh, interesting about that is we, we ran across some data. There was a study out of Taiwan with a lot of people in it. Oh, and yeah. if I recall, what they said was, hey, get, get people occupational therapists and physical therapists, and they will just do a lot better. I, I think I summarized the article yeah. with that sentence. Yeah. <laughs> um, they found, um, they have a huge amount of people. I mean, let's not underestimate that. They were able to pull a lot of data from um, their national health insurance research database, and it had nearly a million people in it. Um, about a quarter million wow. of those were, were the patients with TBI that were hospitalized, and the rest were just hospitalized patients that they took out those case, cases randomly. Um, but either way, the, the, uh, um, they, found, they have a whole list of psychiatric disorders that they made a list of, and then of these patients that had their psychiatric disorders after a, a TBI, um, how many of them? Uh, were put in rehab and intense rehab or just like a very like low intensity rehab and they found that with the intense rehab um, they had basically uh, 56 percent uh, or I guess what's the opposite of that via a, a 44 percent decrease of psychiatric disorders interesting um, and again I think the distinction of intense rehab versus not intense rehab was Frequency. the addition of 
frequency physical rehabilitation, uh, physical therapist and occupational and therapist. Occupation. Yes. Um, great stuff. Um, it, it made me wonder as we were talking about the PTSD data if something is similar, right, where you have those contact points or if the patients that have these TBIs are getting therapy and that's one of the reasons why we see the PTSD drop. And I think the articles that we read just didn't have that kind of information. Yeah, I didn't see anything about that. It, 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 of course, it would have been outside the scope of those articles, so it's, mm -hmm. it's not really fair to kind of expect that out of those <laughs> articles. Yeah. Uh, we we do have a tendency on this podcast to, to talk about psychosis spectrum disorders, mm -hmm. no matter what the podcast is. I think that's probably <laughs> We a, will link it in somehow. Somehow we will link it in, right? So so first of all, we've made the, the statement that, well, maybe traumatic brain or, uh, disorders lead to um, psychosis on some level. Mm -hmm. I, I know... I think I know that when I was in the military, we talked about shearing injuries, right? So those blast injuries caused shearing injuries, axonal shearing, and that that might have an effect on mood. Um, and I've always thought about traumatic brain injuries as being uh, the, the only thing that affected a, a brain injury from the mechanical insult uh, was, was that physical disruption. But But there's more studies going on now, and I think as we talked, I think I understood you to say that uh, Dr. Fuji is making the case that, hey, there's something about post-injury. It's a, it's a biological syndrome that we need to be paying attention to. Tell me kind of about his philosophy. Yeah, he loves the, the term uh, neurobiological syndrome as, as a, uh, a new way to look at um, psychotic disorders, where um, we look at the, almost the same way as amnesia, or sorry, not amnesia, um, Aphasia. Man, what about that? <laughs> aphasia and uh, apraxia. These uh, neurological deficits that can be targeted, that are like, you know, um, identified as one area of the brain that's been a lesion or has had some kind of damage to that area. Um, where we know Broca's aphasia and Wernicke's aphasia. That's mm -hmm. drilled into our minds. Um, do you guys want to go over those real quick? Yeah, so Wernicke's aphasia is basically described as a word salad. So you're, you have all the motor function, but you just can't um, say the right things. <laughs> and, and we didn't have a mnemonic for it, but I always remembered it as Wernicke's is wordy, but makes no sense. Oh, okay. Mm. I think you might have shared one at one point. West? Yeah, so the way that I remembered the locations for Broca's and Wernicke's, because I kept getting it wrong in New World, and I was like, never again, is... Um, <laughs> Biff and West. So Biff is Broca's inferior frontal, and West is Wernicke's superior temporal. And that's just a good, easy way to eliminate multiple choice questions and get the answer really, really fast. <laughs> so if you don't know Mr. Biff West, get to get to know him quickly. Yeah, I like that. Just for completeness, I think Broca was. Um, you don't have the motor function, but you can comprehend. Like I think a lot of those patients. They understand, but they can't say mm. what they want to say. And it can be extremely frustrating for a yeah. patient. Yeah. Very good, guys. Very well done. So I would say that similar. He uses that as the example. Food, Dr. Fuji uses those ex as examples for um, this constellation of syndromes that we see with psychotic disorders, um, in the, especially in the frontal and temporal areas. We have this common theme of. There's something going on in these regions and with these neural circuits that they have either an, an impediment there or maybe an over overactive component to them. Um, and we can see it in, in these uh, post-TBI patients sometimes as well. 
Um, where are we, where are, you want me to get me going with this right now? Um, you know what? That's a good question. <laughs> I was uh, trying to think that myself. How about if we, first of all, talk about... So, so I think Dr. Fuji made the case that here's the things I see and here's the case control data to kind of support what I'm seeing. Mm-hmm. He seemed to think that some symptoms of psychosis show up a little more often than others. And I think a couple of those terms he mentioned, so capgrass, the feeling that people around you have been replaced. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But they look the same. Yes. Uh, cotards, the feeling that uh, maybe you are dead or dying or that your insides are rotting out mm-hmm. on some level. Mm-hmm. Um, he also used um, Fregoli's. Trying to figure out how to mute my phone there. There we go. Fregoli's syndrome. Uh, different people are a single person. Um, you'll never see Fregoli. I've never seen Fregoli's on any test. Uh, he also talked about reduplicative paraamnesia, where locations that you're familiar with seem to be duplicated in other locations. Somatic disorders or delusions we see a little bit more often. And he he noticed that negative symptoms were very infrequent, so only about 25% of the time. And that's different than what we would see with schizophrenia in most cases where those negative symptoms are more prominent. And I think that leads into the argument that he made, which is we should be able to tell the difference between schizophrenia and a TBI-induced schizophrenia. And then he gave a list of tests that can be used to help identify that difference. Uh, For example, EEG, SPECT, MRI, all of these will tend to show some sort of pathology that localizes, as opposed to schizophrenia where, you know, we, we really don't have the ability to give somebody a test and be looking for a lesion and say, there's the lesion, we've got it, right? Um, I guess there are some things that we've talked about before, like P50 auditory processing and maybe some differences on EEG and schizophrenia. But again, those are tend to be not very diagnostic, where mm-hmm. what he's saying is we, we should be able to find either one or many different biological indices of some sort of, of traumatic brain injury that could be associated with it. Does that sound about right? Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, I think he mentioned that there have been things that were found in schizophrenia, um, the primary schizophrenia, uh, versus the TBI that that were different, uh, such as the the schizophrenia had a lot of more atrophy frequency in the thalamus and basal ganglia, whereas the uh, the the psychotic disorders post TBI um, showed a lot more of the um, uh, frontal and temporal areas lesions there, and especially the hippocampus. Where there's some something, some big change there. Now I, I heard somebody once tell me that the hippocampus is a lot like a cinnamon roll. <laughs> it's a beautiful uncut cinnamon roll, and uh, you know when you're younger, you just when you eat a cinnamon roll, you peel it away. You know what I mean? Like, did you ever do that? I still do that. <laughs> still do, that that's the only proper way to eat a cinnamon roll. And I'm diabetic, so I, I can't even talk right now about that. But uh, I feel like a TBI, it's kind of that is a good example of that because. Um, when you get a TBI, a lot of time, times the hippocampus is weak and will rip in those areas of the cinnamon sugar, you know, the uh, the rolls. And so that there's a big diffuse axonal injury in those areas, and that's why that's the supposed reason why we have so much uh, amnesia associated with brain injuries. Very good. Um, I think the implication of being able to recognize a TBI-related psychosis, mm-hmm. if, I, I think we're making the assumption that there's at least some some accuracy that this there's some link some association yeah how how significant it is i think is maybe where we're sitting on the the fence more mm-hmm. um but the implications are for treatment and we don't have randomized control trials on how we would treat patients with 
post-traumatic brain injury psychosis, but he did give a few recommendations. Do you want to uh, kind of review those recommendations for treatment of psychosis in a post-injury patient? Yes, Dr. Fuji, um, I, I, mean, I, believe, I believe his word is a very good suggestion because he, is, he works in Hawaii as a neuropsychologist with, with the VA, and he's been doing this for many years. Um, so I feel he has a little bit of authority on this, but it, it's still, there's no real hard evidence on all these things that I found. Um, but the, he's found that um, they've been, these uh, patients are more susceptible to the side effects of the antipsychotics. Um, and obviously the antipsychotics, especially the atypicals, are recommended for psychotic disorders post-TBI, but we need to be really, really careful of the uh, side effects, especially sedation, anticholinergic, extrapyramidal sy symptoms, and but, but he mentioned specifically uh, seizures, and that I believe he would, he would recommend uh, a, tr a trial on an anticonvulsant to go along with the antipsychotic, such as a valproate, to help uh, uh, reduce the risk of seizures. I'm going to come back to that in just a moment. The seizures? Yeah, yeah. I, I am. Um, I think he also recommended a psychosocial rehabilitation, much like what we would do here. Mm -hmm. um, so, so now going back to the seizures, one of the things that I pulled out of this article was a differential as well, right? If you have somebody that comes in and, and is having symptoms consistent with psychosis, there might be more than a TBI-related emerging psychosis. It could be a delirium. My understanding is that a brain that has had an injury is a little bit more likely to tip into a delirium than one that has not been injured. Um, the other thing that he mentioned was substance misuse, particularly stimulants. And again, substance misuse doesn't go away with uh, having a TBI. It may be less frequent, that misuse, mm -hmm. um, but it's still there. And then the third thing he talked about was seizure activity. Yeah, post-TBI patients have a have, sometimes have a, a bigger chance of having a seizure disorder, especially a, a temporal lobe epilepsy, TLE. That's common, a, common, a, commonly, uh, a common abbreviation, I should say. Yes, temporal lobe epilepsy temporal is a common epilepsy. abbreviation. And it seems to be associated with uh, periectal um, psychosis. Right? Mm -hmm. not, it, not, not all the time, but yeah. Pretty it's associated with that, right? Yeah. It's not it's not causal necessarily. It's not a hundred percent thing, but, but he, he seems to think that about 80% or more of mm -hmm. people that have had traumatic brain injuries. And I wasn't sure if he, he did a cutoff on this of mild, moderate, and severe. I don't recall at the mm -hmm. moment, uh -huh. but that there's a lot of unrecognized, um, epileptic, uh, events in patients with TBIs. And because they seem to be in those areas, he, he speculates that maybe some of the psychosis that we're seeing is really peri, peri, uh, ictal, psychosis um, rather than you know something that's changed in the brain causing psychosis yeah and that'd be really fascinating if when more research comes out on that um, because then we'd have a bit bit, bit better explanation of, of why are, are, is this psychosis um, post TBI a, a, a thing why, why does that even happen yeah, I think but, I think that gets to some of the G whistle were you gonna say something Valentina the G well, did you oh. say G whistle Gee whiz. Gee whiz. Yeah, but before I mention my gee whiz thing. Oh, I just thought it was interesting when you were talking about um, temporal lobe epilepsy and psychosis because I remember from doing Anki that um, temporal lobe epilepsy is associated with olfactory hallucinations, which a, like a lot of other things aren't really associated with olfactory. And so I was just, I just thought that was interesting. Yeah. And a little born fact. Well, I, I guess what is interesting... It, the kind of you can tie in there is that the 
hallucinations you found he found in, in this schizophrenia like psychosis post TBI were most of the time auditory, which is kind of the temporal lobe mm-hmm. association there. Um, I think he did mention some olfactory, but that was like it's still kind of infrequent for that these ones, but it was like ten percent maybe mm-hmm. in somewhere there. I thought the the G was thing that I was thinking about relates to that somewhat, right? You talked about what's the mechanism of action for this and we really don't have any yeah. idea. And and I know we've talked about axonal shearing and, and diffuse injury to the axons particularly in the hippocampus. Mm-hmm. But one of the things that I found was very interesting as I was as I was kind of rummaging through some of the articles that had been cited in the articles that you sent me, I came across an article by Dr. Jolly where they took, um, they took a carbon radio labeled PHNO, and there's a very long name for that. They don't have a, <laughs> a good short name for this, this compound. And uh, it, it binds to the D2 and D3 receptors, and they're able to look at D2, D3 receptor density. And looking post-injury, they see a dramatic drop in, in those receptors in parts of the brain. So perhaps these injuries are it, it may not just be axonal shearing that's leading to this mechanism of action. There might be some sort of internal change or a, uh, a scar response, so to speak, something that is the brain's restorative response to injury that's causing some downstream effects that, that might be targets for intervention at some point in the future, and it makes me kind of hopeful. So, mm-hmm. What have I not asked you about that uh, we should probably throw in the mix here? Um. I guess just one quick thing is that I I I prefer I like this neuro neuro uh, biological um, th- syndrome theory by Dr. Fuji. I guess he heads it and advocates for it um, mostly because a lot of the times there's this almost multi-hit factor to um, developing psychoses where a person could be using substance use and that exacerbates or uh, makes it more likely for somebody to have a psychotic disorder, uh, especially if they have a seizure disorder or if they've had a seizure disorder history in their family or family history of mental illnesses. They seem to have already have a hit, in a sense, on, on their you know, risk factor. Um, uh, so you're saying sure. not just, you're not just talking about this syndrome being related to the TBI. Mm-mm contributor you're saying that schizophrenia is a syndrome and it's a complex biological syndrome that we need to start thinking about it more as a syndrome rather than a diagnosis yeah whether well, it might be multiple etiologies or stress stresses or yeah, i guess risk factors yeah. that can 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 come up to can come kind of build into that and I, yeah. I think that fits in very well with what might have been our very first podcast and and i'll throw a shout out to dr phil bennett who is uh now i think in his second year of residency and uh, did a great job helping me get on top of you know starting these podcasts for ho- hopefully to help students have access to kind of some high yield facts along the way. Uh, high yield, uh, let's see, we, we want to close down in the next minute or two. Um, high yield thoughts or other thoughts that uh, you have to add, Gio? Just keep in mind when doing the GCS, it's to measure consciousness. So you want to make sure your patient is not on any mind-altering substances or is intoxicated. I like it. Valentina? Um, That the one-month and two-month point for post-traumatic amnesia are really important Mm -hmm. for determining outcomes. I like it. And Um, I guess final thought for me, um, 
is you're going to have lots of patients. You're going to have patients, uh, or even yourself, or loved ones that are going to have brain injuries. Um, and I think that one of the big things is to make sure they get get the care they need. Um, one of the things with TBIs they've noticed is there's this significant deficit in recognizing one's own problems or symptoms. Um, Anosognosia. <laughs> Anosognosia. Anosognosia. A n o s o g n o s i a. Where you don't recognize that you have you have a problem when you have a problem. Um, I think you, maybe you have a problem like that with Dr. Coke or Diet Coke, but I mean, I, I don't know really. <laughs> Sorry, what was that? I was drinking. <laughs> um, but please get help. Um, <laughs> I'm talking about patients with, with TBIs, not you t- specifically. <laughs> I heard that, Stephen. Very, very well done. Guys, this was uh, just a wonderful, wonderful four weeks for me. I really enjoyed having the three of you here. Uh, please, please know that you're welcome back anytime. And uh, on that note, team out. Team, team out. out.